Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. For those of you who've been coming over the last few weeks, you'll know we've been doing a series uh, over these last four weeks we've called The Mission of God. And uh, tonight I want to conclude that series. Uh, I've mentioned a number of times we're looking at it, and it's, it's, not, it's not new information for many of you. And for those of you who have been at Gateway for some time, you will have heard us talk along these lines with at least some degree of regularity. But um, we've called it an anti-drift series. The book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3 or chapter 2, I think it is, um, says, be careful lest we drift away from those uh, truths that we, have been, uh, that, that we have been established in. And drift is something that happens if we aren't reflective and intentional in terms of making sure it doesn't. So this is one of those series where we're calling you back to, uh, to remind you of the story that we are supposed to be living in and then living out of. I talked about the fact that we're all shaped by stories. If, you don't, if that's if kind of strange to you, you might think or exchange the word worldview for stories. We, we have a storied identity. We are, we are by virtue of a worldview, we see, the, we see things in a particular manner. So everybody is shaped by their worldview, by the stories that they embrace. And it becomes incredibly important, it's imperative, in fact, that we live out of the right story. If we don't live out of the biblical story, we simply will be shaped by the stories that we are surrounded by, our cultural stories. And in our case, the biggest cultural story is expressive individualism. We get to create, a, create our own story. Um, you know, we 20th, first century postmoderns, we say we don't believe in big stories. It's just a power grab. We create our own stories, failing to realize that expressive individualism is in fact a big story. You can't get away from them. The Bible is a meta-narrative, it's a big story, it's a worldview, and as such it seeks to answer the vital question, that it, the questions that every reflective human being asks at some stage in their lives. Where did we come from? What's gone wrong with the world? Intuitively we are, a world, we are aware that the world is not as it's supposed to be. How can it be fixed? Where are we heading? Who am I? The issue of identity. What am I here for? The issue, of, the issue of mission. How am I supposed to live? The issue of ethics. And so we've been looking at this over these last four weeks. I've tried to get you to imagine the scriptures as like a five-act play. So um, we can sort of break the story down into, into acts, if you like. Act one is creation. Where did we come from? And that's Genesis chapter one and chapter 2. What's gone wrong with the world? Genesis chapter 3 verses uh, through to Genesis chapter 11. Act 3 is the election of Abraham and Israel, and Act 4 is Jesus, the true Israelite. So Acts 3 and 4 answer the question, how do we fix what's got wrong, gone wrong with the world? So where do I come from? What's gone wrong with the world? Act three and four, how it can be fixed. And then last week I talked about Act 5, God's mission continued through God's new creation people. And that runs from uh, Acts chapter 1 in the Bible through to 2023. 
And you and I are in this part of the story. Every story has a beginning, it has a middle, it has a climax, and it has an ending. And in this message, what I want to do is consider the end of the story. And it answers the question, where are we heading? I was kind of joking with Chris and Mike, um, you know, no, no pressure. You know, where are we going? Where's the story going to end? No pressure. Um, I, I joke with them that I'll need to come up with some dates before, uh, before today. Unfortunately, I haven't come up with any dates. Best I could do was a Tuesday in May. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry. There are always people who, um, I, I was joking by the way, okay, uh, there are always, nobody laughed so I think you might feel I was serious or it was a pathetic popper joke, okay. Um, there are always people who claim that the future doesn't interest them. Not interested. I live for the present, part of the big cultural story I might say. However, from Plato to Hegel, the great philosophers have always declared that what you think about the future is actually the key to thinking seriously about everything else. And as believers, we need to have some understanding of where the story's heading, uh, because the final scenes will tell us not only how the story ends, but as in all stories, reveals the whole point of the story. It helps us understand the scope of God's redemptive concerns, and it gives us some insight into how we should be living here in the present. So, where's, the, where's this heading? How does the Bible story end? What does the end of the story look like? Like all great dramas, our story, this story, has some incredible twists and turns that were completely unexpected and came as a great surprise to the people in the earlier acts of the drama. So a question, how did the people in the early acts of this drama, Act 3, Israel and Abraham and, and the contemporaries of Jesus in Acts 4, how did they think the story was going to end? Jewish theology clung to a story and had a hope that had a particular shape to it. And I tried to diagram it for you. So we've got this present age. This present age is marked by rebellion, by wickedness, by uh, the oppression of God's people. And the Jewish people looked forward to a time when there would be a break in this age and the age to come would, would break upon them, that, that Messiah would come, there would be God's intervention, and they described it in Exodus language. The Exodus is the gold standard of redemption in the Old Testament. And when God's people were oppressed and needed deliverance, they often tended to think in Exodus language um, uh, paradigms. So this intervention, uh, Messiah coming with salvation, judgment, and vindication for Israel, there would be a resurrection. Daniel chapter 2 talks about that, that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth would awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So Messiah would break in like the Exodus, set God's people free, judge the enemies, and a new age would begin. I wish I'd done the diagram differently because I would have taken that line there and put it down level with that line because that sort of indicates that there's a break and something happens up there. In actual fact, the Jewish people understood it as, as not the church or the people of God being removed somewhere else, but the age changing and the new age marked with righteousness, obedience to Torah, um, uh, God's people living in prosperity, free of their enemies in the same place, the same geographical location as it were, as, as the earlier age, but, 
but completely different. So they anticipated Yahweh, a Messiah coming. There would be a restoration and a renewal, not just of Israel, but of the whole creation. So when you read the prophets, you listen to Isaiah as he speaks in Isaiah chapter 11. In that day, he says, the wolf and the lamb will lie down together and the leopard and the goats will be at peace. Calves and fat cattle will be safe among lions and the little child shall lead them all. The cows will graze among the bears, the cubs and the calves will lie, to, lie down together and lions will eat grass like cows. We're talking about a completely different age to the one that we know of. Babies will crawl safely among poisonous snakes and the little child who puts his hand in a nest of deadly adders will pull it out unharmed. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for as the waters fill the sea so shall the earth be full of the knowledge of the Lord. This is how the people understood the story would unfold. Messiah would break in. Deliverance, the vindication of God's people. And that there would be a completely new order. Isaiah goes on in chapter 65 and says, For see, I'm creating a new heavens and a new earth, so wonderful that no one will even think about the old ones anymore. So their hope was Yahweh's coming to his people would result in the world being set right. It would be a world of shalom. Their hope was not for uh, a world beyond the world, but a hope for the world. So as I say, I, I, I kind of wish that rather than doing those separate lines, I joined them together. The hope is for the world, not for something beyond the world. Now, for the people in Act 4, when Jesus, the true Israelite, comes along, there is a massive surprise and an unexpected twist in the drama. As I say, they are praying and believing for a Messiah, one who would come with salvation and vindication for God's people and judgment for God's enemies. He would restore and rebuild the temple and he would reinstitute the proper worship of Yahweh. The life, death and resurrection of Messiah completely flummoxed them. They were, they were not expecting this. In fact, Jesus did all of the things that they anticipated that he would do, but not in the way they thought it would happen. They thought he would judge their literal physical enemies. Jesus, through the cross, destroyed the principalities and powers, made an open show of them, changed the world. That Friday night, the day the revolution began, is what N.T. Wright calls it, the world was a different place. The principalities and powers had been exposed and thrown down. And the temple was, re was being rebuilt. Jesus spoke about the temple of his body and then the temple that constituted his people, you and I. So the overthrow of the enemies, the rebuilding of the temple is actually what happened, but it wasn't what they expected. They expected literally and physically. They expected a conquering Messiah who would defeat God's physical enemies, restore the temple, not one that seemingly would be conquered by their enemies, killed by, by those who were oppressing them. So Jesus was rejected by and large by the elite leaders of Israel. He was crucified as a messianic pretender, but, and this is a huge but, he's then vindicated by God who raises him from the dead. And the resurrection is the public divine declaration that Jesus was indeed Israel's Messiah and hence the world's Lord. What they expected God would do at the end of the age, when this present age became the new age, was resurrection. They anticipated that the dead would rise and the righteous would be vindicated, the wicked would be judged. 
But God did for one person in the middle of the age what they expected God to do for everybody at the end of the age. And when Jesus rose from the dead, everything is different. Different diagram. So Jesus breaks in to the new age and a new creation has begun. He is the beginning of this new age. I said that this morning, you know, when, when Paul wrote, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. But the, but the phrase, he is, is not in the original. It just simply goes, if any man is in Christ, new creation. And I told a story that many of you have heard before, so forgive the redundancy, but a little girl in a Sunday school class was asked by her teacher, what do you think the first words that were that Jesus spoke to his disciples after he was raised from the dead? And she said, I know, I know. And she what? And she said, ta-da. <laughs> well, in one sense, this is Paul's ta-da. If any man is in Christ, Ta-da! It's new creation. It has begun. It's kicked in. Now the old age continues on. Jesus, who is raised from the dead in the middle of the age, is the first fruits from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15 says. And he is the promise that the whole harvest will come at the end of the age when Jesus returns in his second coming. And John says at that point, as Daniel said, there will be a resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. You can read that in John chapter 5. So there are these two great invasions of Yahweh into this drama. The incarnation and then the second coming, which is to come. The incarnation, Oscar Coleman, the theologian, said was like D-Day. For those of you who know about World War II, um, once the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy, most uh, world and, and war historians say once they got a beachhead, the war was in fact effectively over. The invasion had begun. Now, a lot of lives would be lost. There would be phenomenal battles, but the Germans, the Nazis were being pushed back and the, and the die was cast, as it were, by D-Day. But the second coming is V-Day, Victory Day, when finally the enemy is defeated. So we have these two great invasions in, in this drama. In Act 5, we are presently living in the overlap of the age. The old age continues down here. The new age has begun up there. This age, by the way, in the scripture is called the old man. Now, some of you read uh, Romans chapter 6 and you see, you know, in baptism, we, uh, we put off the old man, we put on the new man, and we tend, classic Westerners, to think it's individual, that the old man is something in me, when in fact, the old man is something I was in, and by resurrection, by baptism, by identification with Jesus, we are taken out of the old man and we're placed in a new man. The new man, the body of Christ, is a corporate entity. It's not something in you. It's something you are in. And we now live in the overlap of the ages. The new age is here and it's coming in its fullness, but it's not here as yet in its fullness. The fullness of God's redemptive purposes, the new heavens and the new earth, awaits Jesus' second coming. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, Don, I've, I've read some books on the second coming and it doesn't look like your diagram because somewhere in there there's another line and it's called the rapture of the church. 
Now, I've read the late great planet Earth and I've read the, the um, you know, Left Behind series and they all talk about Jesus coming secretly for his church and then there's the seven-year period when Jesus will come back publicly with his church. So where's your line? Well, it's not there because I don't think it should be there. I, I, I'm sorry if that ha happens to be your take on the second coming. Um, as humbly as I can, I think you're mistaken. I don't think there is some kind of secret coming of Jesus for his church, a seven-year period, and then the Jesus coming back. I think it's one glorious, indivisible event, not a two-phase coming. Now, I don't plan to try and justify that or explain that in detail, but uh, I can't see in Scripture a secret rapture. And, and uh, just one Scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, says, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a mighty shout and with a soul-stirring cry of the archangel with a great trumpet call of God, and believers who are dead will be first to rise to meet the Lord. Then we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up. That's where the rapture thing comes from, with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and remain with him forever. It's really difficult to see a secret coming in those verses. That is a really noisy verse. God cries out, soul stirring cry from the archangel, trumpets blowing. This is a noise fit to wait the dead. And there isn't anything secret about it. It's a racket. And it's in that context that we are caught up to meet the Lord. And we don't get whisked away in the rapture to some ethereal place out there. We get caught up to meet the Lord and we return as an escort with him. You say, Don doesn't say that. How do you know that? Well, the Greek word for meeting the Lord in the air is a Greek word, apantesis. And it's at the idea of going out to meet a dignitary who's coming to visit your city. And you go out as a welcoming flotilla, as it were. Uh, Rondo was telling me this morning in 1953 when the Queen came in, that, the, that all, all of those little boats went out into the harbour to meet Britannica and then, and then they followed her in. That, that's apantesis, that's the escort. It's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 28, verse 15, when Paul was approaching Rome, and it says, the brothers in Rome had heard that we were coming. They came out to meet us at the forum. They came out to welcome us and return with us. It's the same word used in Matthew 25 in the parable of the ten virgins, where it says, at midnight the cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming. Let's go out to meet him. The idea is going out to meet somebody and then coming back with him, not to be whisked off to some other place somewhere else. When you go to pick up someone from the airport, you don't go up to the airport planning to get onto the plane that they've just arrived on and go off somewhere else. You go up, pick them up, and bring them back home. That's apantesis. That's this word that's used in the Greek. And nowhere in Scripture that I can read is salvation ever conceived as a flight away from history and away from the earth. That's actually a Greek idea. It's Platonism. It's not the Hebrew Bible. History is not the stage on which man lives out his human existence only finally to leave it. The end of the great story of which you and I are part of is not about people leaving earth and going off to some other place. As the song says, the child's song says, somewhere in outer space God has prepared a place for those who love him and trust him and obey. Well, it's a nice little ditty to sing and it's a good Sunday school song, but it's really bad theology. Because the Bible doesn't say that we're going off to somewhere in outer space, somewhere way away. The Bible talks about a resurrected new creation people, you and I, 
living on a renewed, restored earth. Read Romans chapter 8, 19 to 21. For all creation is waiting patiently and hopefully for that future day when God will resurrect his children. For on that day, thorns and thistles, sin, death and decay, the things that overcame the world against its will at God's command, will all disappear and the world around us will share in the glorious freedom from sin which God's children enjoy. I love the J.B. Phillips version. It says that all of creation is standing on tiptoes in anticipation, waiting for the redemption of God's people to take place because they know that when God's people are redeemed and restored, the whole of the earth will be as well. In Revelation chapter 21 and 22, which is the end of our story, we see not the people of God going up to heaven, but heaven coming down to God's people. And from Revelation uh, right back to Genesis, it's, it's the story of God coming down to people. God coming down in the garden, walking in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve. God instructing the people after, after the fall and the disarray of, of um, creation and, and the people, God chooses Abraham and his descendants and, and elects them, brings them out. And the first thing he does after he gives them the Ten Commandments is he takes two years to instruct them how to build a tabernacle so that he could come and live in their midst. The book of Leviticus, which is so hard to understand, is a health and safety manual for a people who have a holy God living in the midst of them. It's like an instruction manual for a nuclear reactor that's been placed in a local neighborhood. You know, if you've got that in a local neighborhood, you're going to have to be careful because, because it, it, it's dangerous. The presence of God can be dangerous for an unholy people. And so God comes down into the midst of his people. He's always coming down. Emmanuel, Jesus coming down, God with us. And the end of the story is not us going off somewhere else. It's God coming down to us. And it's about a resurrected people, a new creation people, exploring the resources and treasures of a new restored earth, an earth now filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Theologian Edward uh, Thurnison says, The world into which we shall enter at the parousia, or the second coming of Jesus Christ, is therefore not another world. It is this world, this heaven, both, however, passed away and renewed. It is these forests, these fields, these cities, these streets, and these people that will be the scene of redemption. Now, some of you might be saying, okay, um, Don, I have a question because I read somewhere in the scripture where this earth is going to be burned up. Um, do you know where that is? Well, I do. It's in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, and it goes like this. The day of the Lord is surely coming as unexpectedly as a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the heavenly bodies will disappear in the fire, and the earth and everything on it will be burned up. So Don, how does that fit with your theory that God is actually going to renew and restore the earth? It seems like here he's going to destroy it. Well, if you study the scholars, they'll suggest to you that the word conveys the idea not of destruction and of annihilation, but of passing through a refining fire that removes the impurities, the deformities, and the corruptions. It is a word that's used a number of other places, and it never means destruction and annihilation. It's, it's a word in Peter earlier on, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 7, where he says, your faith will be tried by fire. It's the idea of the book of Malachi where it says, the Lord will be like a refiner's fire and he will purify the sons of Levi. This is talking about a cataclysmic purification, not an annihilation or a replacement of God's 
good world. God's redemptive purposes will reach, as Isaac Watts' hymn in Joy to the World says, as far as the curse is found. God intends to redeem and restore. He's not going to forsake and trash the good creation that has been marred by sin. He's going to redeem and restore it. I love the way C.S. Lewis um, portrays this whole idea in the very last book of the Nanya series. For those of you who have read it, it's the last battle. And uh, for those of you who haven't read it, spoiler alert, um, uh, th though they don't realize it, the Pevensey children and their parents have been killed in a train accident and they're now in Narnia forever. Listen as I read it to you. Lucy looks around and says, those hills, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence, why they are exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pyre with its forked head and there's the pass into Archenland and everything. And yet, says Lucy, they're different. They have more colours on them, and they look further away than I remembered, and they're more, they're more, more the real thing, said Lord Diggory. Suddenly, far sight, the eagle spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled round, and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we've all been blind. We're only now beginning to see where we are. From up there, I've seen it all. Edismere, Beaver's Dam, the Great River, and Kea Paravel, still shining on the edge of the Eastern Sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. It was the unicorn that summed up what everyone was feeling, and he cried, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. This is the reason we love the old Narnia, because it sometimes looked like this. He captures it brilliantly. Continuity and discontinuity. It's the same world, but it's absolutely different. You're the same person, but by virtue of Christ's death on the cross, you are absolutely different. Ta-da. You're new creation. You say, sometimes I don't feel like it. I know. We're there, but not there fully yet. God is doing a work, but it's underway, and we're on the journey in this, stories, in this story. The very last words of the Narnia series are a priceless comment on the future that lies before you and I as God's people. And it goes like this. And for us, this is the end of all of the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at least they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. It's brilliant, and it's our future. You might be thinking, Don, I'm living in a place right now which seems pretty dark and difficult. Paul talked about that. He, Paul was a realist. Although he believed all this, he was a realist. And he said sometimes we face real difficulties. But no matter what they are, they can't separate us from the love of God. And no matter how dark and difficult it is for you right now, Teresa of Avila says, what we go through in the world right now in terms of difficulty is like one night in a bad hotel compared with the rest of our lives. And it might be dark and difficult for you, but hang on, because this is the end of our story. Musos, would you please come as I read the last verse.
The last verse I want to read to you is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. This verse comes at the end of the resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul talking about the end of our story and the resurrection of God's people from the dead. And he says, In the light of all this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Whatever you do. Now, some of you are thinking, well, it's okay for you, Don. You do spiritual things, and I I, I guess spiritual things count. Listen, everything counts according to this. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. For those of you who teach children at school, for those of you who are looking after sick, sick people in, in the area of health, for those of you who are stay-at-home mums or stay-at-home dads, what you do counts. It's all kingdom work. Be steadfast and unmovable. Whoever you are, wherever you go, you get to bring the kingdom because new creation is happening in you. And the Bible says, live like it. Paul says, put off the old man with all its deeds. You don't belong there anymore. You have been lifted to a new level. Start to live like it by the power of the Spirit. You don't do it in the strength of your own personality, you know, trying to pull yourself up from, with your bootlaces. You live in the power of the Holy Spirit who is the new creation reality in you. That's the end of the story. And it's a story worth living for. There's not another story, in my view, that compares with this one. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.